Well, the title of our sermon is The Messianic Covenant, our scripture, 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 through 17, and our series, The Promise of the Messianic Kingdom. This is the very word of the Lord. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan, the prophet, see, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Have I not lived in a house? I have not, excuse me, lived in a house since the day I brought up the people out of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, whom you shall, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom." He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with uh, the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house... And your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan the prophet spoke to David. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would open our understanding. We are mere mortals, O Lord. And we ask the impossible that we can understand something of the great God. Our minds are finite and you are infinite. But what a wonderful truth we have even contained in this scripture today. The wonderful condensation of God, the humility of God that he would speak to us. So we pray that you would, Lord, that you would give us much to feast on. That you would give us our daily bread. That you would give us Jesus Christ through this passage. Bless those who couldn't be here, Lord. We have many who are ill. My own daughter, Lord, is in urgent care right now with an allergic reaction. Uh, Lord, we we know that our sister Emily's not feeling well and so on and so forth. We pray that you would touch 
those who aren't feeling well, but for those of us who are here, Lord, and for those who might be watching, oh, Lord, through various um, social media, we pray, oh, Lord, that you would use this word today to build us up in the most holy faith. And if there's someone here, Lord, who still remains outside of grace, still remains in their unbelief, has still not come to Christ as Lord and Savior, I pray that today you would use this word to show them the folly of that way and that you would bring them to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. And amen. Would you be seated, beloved? Our chapter today is one of the key chapters, as I was saying, of all of Scripture. In it, we find the promises of God to David contained in what is often referred to as the Davidic covenant. It is one of the most central passages in all of Scripture. Um, It is because of this promise that God makes to David that Jesus Christ rides into Jerusalem seated on a donkey, the humble king, the servant king. It is because of this passage of Scripture that in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, we see Christ coming back on a white horse, the conquering king, to set up the eternal kingdom. It is because of this passage that the people of Jerusalem referred to Jesus as the son of David. They were referencing this very prophecy. It is because of this prophecy that Pilate asked Jesus, are you a king then? And Jesus said, yes. He says, my kingdom, meaning I am a king, is not of this world. It is because of this prophecy that Pilate nailed upon the death, upon the cross of Christ, the words, here is the king of the Jews. He was talking about this, whether he knew it or not, he was talking about this prophecy and the religious leaders were offended, if you remember. Say, don't say he is the king of the Jews. Say, say that he said he was the king of the Jews. They didn't like the fact that they were referring to him as the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. All of, all of this boils down to this. Even the angel that gave Mary the good news that she was pregnant or would be pregnant says to her, and you shall name him Emmanuel, for he will save his people, and God will give him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign forever. Even the angel spoke about this very chapter, Second Samuel chapter 7. So, beloved, I have been longing to preach this chapter ever since we started First Samuel. It is the culmination of it. It is, it is the climax of First and Second Samuel. This is the pinnacle. This is the highest point where God promises that there is going to be a child born to David who will be not only man, but will be God. And he will sit on the throne, the Davidic throne, forever. He will establish a forever reign. Praise God. We look forward to the consummation of these things. This is this chapter. So it is a significant chapter in biblical revelation. It is an important chapter. It's hard to understand the office of Christ as king without first understanding this chapter. So let us delve into it. Our chapter then is going to highlight the covenant God and his mercy and his love for his people. And today it will be my desire to present the covenant God in all his glory so that you can worship him and be drawn to him. So let us look at verses 1 through 4 which I've entitled, if you're keeping notes, The Wisdom of the Covenant God, verses 1 through 4. 
the wisdom of the covenant God. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan, the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Our passage opens with David and Nathan, and this is the way I see it, sitting around, enjoying each other's company. And during this time, David proposes building a permanent house for the Ark of the Covenant. If you remember, the Ark of the Covenant represented the guidance of God represented the word of God. It contained the Ten Commandments. The guidance of God because Moses would meet with God there and God would tell him what to do. The word of God, specifically because the Ten Commandments written by God were inside. It represented the holiness of God. No one could see it. No one could touch it lest they die. And it represented the very presence of God. When the, when the ark was moved, the people would yell, Go God! And when the ark would come, it says, Come back to us, God. It represented the literal presence of God. And David reasoned that God had given military peace to his kingdom. The Bible tells us that he was at rest and God's presence was finally among his people. The Bible tells us in the last chapters that David had brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Saul the king hadn't done that. Saul the king was content with the Ark of the Covenant being on the outskirts. He didn't want it centralized. He didn't want it to be the focus of his kingdom. But David That was one of the first things he did when he unified Israel. He said, we need to bring the Ark of the Covenant back. We need to put it in Jerusalem. It needs to be the central focus of our worship. However, David, although he has brought the Ark of the Covenant back, there's something that begins to bother the king. He he reasons that he lives in a house of cedar, a mansion made out of cedar wood, very expensive wood, the best of the best. But the Ark of God sits in a tent, And if God's presence is to be among among the people, then David reasons the presence of God should be housed in a permanent temple, symbolizes God's permanent presence among his people. No longer in a tent, God will be stationary in the middle of things, in the middle of Israel. This would encourage Israel to understand that God must be the focus of their government, God must be the focus of their worship, and God must be the focus of of their lives if, if it was permanent in that central place of power. And so that's why David wants to build a temple. It's a noble desire. It is a holy desire. He wants God to be the central focus of his kingdom, not himself. He is very much different than Saul. David understands something. He understands that something is wrong when the Lord's servant, meaning David, leaves among the cedar trees Right, A house built of cedar, the most expensive thing that can be, while the sign of the Lord's present was lying among curtains. It bothered David. This isn't right, he says. David looks at this and it speaks of unbalanced priorities. It speaks to the importance of the earthly king, David, above the importance of the true and heavenly king, God. David's king, right? He's living in a cedar house. The Ark of the Covenant is living in a tent. Who would the people think is more important if they look at this? David. And he says, that should not be. That's an unbalanced priority, spiritually speaking. 
David said, it should be the other way around. God should be the center. God should be the focus. He should be the one in the cedar house, not me. And so we need to build a great and glorious temple for God. Now, beloved, if you're paying attention, here comes our first lesson that you can apply today, that the sermon can really hopefully be applied into your life today. Beloved, there is something wrong with our faith when we have unbalanced priorities. God must be our chief aim, as the Westminster Catechism says, in everything. The chief aim of man is to worship God, to seek God, to love God, both here and to enjoy Him there forever. The chief end of our lives should not be our own comfort. The chief end of our lives should not be our own lives, but to serve God. We must consider then the state of our current devotion, time, and energy and quickly, a survey of how we live will reveal much about our priorities. If you sit down with God, the Holy Spirit, and ask God, the Holy Spirit, to search your heart, to look at how you're using your energy, your time, your devotion, it will reveal much about you, about your priorities. A healthy biblical priority is that I live for God. I don't give God what's left over. Do you see the difference? I live for God, I don't give to God what's left over. And to prove this point, I want you to consider one of the most well-known portions of Scripture, but look at it hopefully with new eyes. Matthew 6, 33, the first part says this, But seek first, what is our priority? But seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first His righteousness. I am not to seek first my comfort. I am not to seek first my retirement, my impending retirement. I am not to seek first myself in any way. I'm supposed to seek first the kingdom of God. I am to seek first what? His righteousness. That should be the chief end aim of my life. Every morning when I get up, every night when I go to bed, what is my chief end? Seek first whom? God. That speaks of a balanced spiritual view. You understand who you are and you understand who he is, how infinitely greater he is. And your whole life is devoted to him who has saved you from the worst of fates. Beloved, do you have a balanced view of life? Do you have balanced priorities? Listen to Psalm 27.4 giving us the same thought. One thing I want one thing I have asked of the Lord. I, I only want one thing from God. What is that thing? That I will that I will seek after. That I will, I'm sorry, that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I want to, I want to, by His grace, one day enter into heaven and be in His presence forever. That is the chief end of my life. Can you say amen to that, beloved? It's so important. Not only that, says David, or says the writer here, he says, but I also ask God to, that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and that I would inquire in his temple. I want to be among his people. I want to look at the beauty of the Lord while I'm alive. And I pray that one day I could be in the presence of God forever. That is the aim of my life. That's the one thing I ask. Balanced spiritual priorities. Do you see it? Balanced spiritual. And I know how easy it is to become unbalanced. Would you agree with that statement? So easy. Work becomes way too important. Even our children can become way too important. 
Our lives become too important. And sadly, in the culture that we live in, entertainment has become way too important. Did you hear what I just said? Entertainment has become way too important. So we must ask, are our lives disproportionately geared towards our own comfort instead of to the service of the great God who has saved us from the worst of faiths? That is the question that you must answer today by the power and the help of God the Holy Spirit. I can't answer that question for you. Only you can sit down with God and say, what am I spending my time on? What is the most important thing in my life? And if you come up with one thing that's more important to you in your life, it could even be a good thing. It became an idol and it, you have to deal with it. David said, it is not right. It is not right that the, that the ark of the covenant lie in tents while I, while I live in a nice house. This isn't right. This, this is unbalanced priorities. Well, let's returning back to our story. Upon hearing David's plan, Nathan reasons that David's desire to build a temple is noble, is rational, and he says it's even holy. So Nathan urges David to build the temple, and Nathan commits a huge mistake. Did you see what his mistake is? He assumed he knew the mind of God. This is a good plan. This is a great thing. No other king has ever wanted to build God a, a temple. No other leader has wanted to build God a temple. No other leader has wanted the presence of God to be central in their government. David, this is wonderful. This must be a desire by God in your heart. And it was. David, this is obviously God's will. We don't need to pray. We don't need to ask God. Obviously, this is from the Lord. Go ahead and build the temple. Do you see the mistake? Do you see the mistake? Can I ask you a question? If David had asked you, what do you think? Should I build the temple for the Lord so it could be the central focus so that we would worship God, that he would be permanent among his people so the people can have their eyes on him and not on the king? What would you have said to David? The very same thing. Go for it. It must be God. Careful when you presume to know the mind of God. What would you have said to Paul the Apostle if he came to you and says, listen, I want to go to Asia Minor. That's an unreached people. And I want to preach the gospel to them. Perhaps God would grant us their souls. You would have said, Paul, you're our best preacher. God uses you so mightily. Go. It's obviously God. Of course, to want to go to an unreached people, that has to be God. But what was God's answer to Paul twice when he prayed that prayer? No. We don't understand why not. I mean, it makes total sense from our infinite, from our finite, very little perspective. It makes total sense to send Paul. It makes total sense that David should build a temple. Nathan speaks as the prophet without consulting God. Even the prophet can make a terrible mistake. Amen? If he doesn't consult the Lord. However, the Bible tells us that later that night, God rejects Nathan's reasoning. God speaks to Nathan and tells David to speak to David. And what God says to David shocks us, the reader. What does God say to David? David, you're correct. The Ark of the Covenant should be in a permanent dwelling. The Ark of the Covenant deserved to be permanently among God's people. But David, you're not going to be the man to build that temple. Now there's reasons why we find out later. David says from his own, there's further information that this chapter doesn't give us. David gives us later, because you're a man of blood. 
You've been a warrior king. And the temple has to represent God's peace with God's people. So I will put, appoint a king that will never know war. Your son will be completely at peace. He will be the king of peace. Careful with that title, right? Who will build a temple. And so it is not for you. So God says to David, no. God had chosen another person. He tells him who that person is. His son to come after him. And his son will complete the temple. But David, you are not going to build the temple. It must have hurt for a split second. He had this desire to worship God. He loved God. He wanted God among You see, what David wants is a good thing. And God doesn't tell him it was a bad thing. God just said, it is not for you. The answer to you is what? No. Oh, Lord, help us understand. Again, we are confronted with biblical truth that we must apply to our lives. God answers our prayers in one of three ways. We might receive a yes. We can receive a wait, which we're hard. it's hard for us being as impatient as we are. And then we can receive a no from God. No from God. We might have grand plans that seem impossible for God to refuse, but we must be willing to be reined in by the will of God through prayer. We must be an obedient people when God says no. We must be a patient people when God says wait. And we must be an action people when God says go. These are necessary elements of Christian maturity. And you will never be a mature Christian if you throw a tantrum every time God tells you no. Nobody likes that kid at the supermarket. Right? And you will not be a mature Christian if you throw a tantrum every time God tells you wait. And you're like, how long, God? How long? How long? As long as God says. Remember, some of his promises have lasted over 2,000 years in their fulfillment. We're still waiting for the second coming of our Lord. What is time to God? Therefore, we cannot assume anything. Did you hear what I just said? As Christians, we cannot assume what? Anything. But we must consult God in prayer. That was Nathan's mistake. He assumed. We must we must consult God in prayer. God must lead us. Even when we think we understand the course ahead of us. Even when the course ahead of us seem obvious. We have to understand something about ourselves. We're prideful. We're ignorant. We're small. We're finite. We don't see everything. It might look like a good idea. But God might say what? No. Oh beloved that this lesson would permeate your heart today. If you learn nothing else as a Christian. If you're here as a Christian today. Learn this. You must consult God. With every, even if the decision seems a no-brainer, like building a temple for God. That, well, that's a no-brainer, says Nathan. Go for it. Do it. Absolutely. Careful. Every time you act outside of consulting God, you're telling God, I don't need your counsel. I got this. I understand. I know truth. Careful. It is an attitude, actually, of what? Pride. Beloved, one thing I'm getting to know more and more as I grow in grace is how desperately I need God more than I thought I needed Him. I thought I needed Him, but now I realize, oh, I am dependent for everything, absolutely everything. Isn't that what the Lord's Prayer teaches us? Give us today our daily bread. We can't even feed ourselves if it's not for God. This passage of Scripture is enlightening, isn't it, beloved? God's servants mean well oftentimes, 
But they often make terrible mistakes when they think that they can act on God's behalf without God's leading. In the present case, a human plan, Nathan's plan must be corrected by divine revelation. God steps in and says, I don't know what you were talking, go and build a temple. The answer is actually no. We learn that the kingdom of God, listen, the kingdom of God is never safe in human hands, no matter how godly those hands may be. David was, had a godly desire. Nathan had a godly desire. But even in godly hands, the kingdom of God is not safe. The only place that the kingdom of God is safe is in the hands of God himself. Amen? So the Bible warns us against presumption. The Bible warns us against presumption. We read about it in 1 Corinthians 2, 11, the second part of that verse. So also, listen to this. No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. How many of us comprehend the thoughts of God? None of you. None of us. I love that the Bible tells you no one comprehends the thoughts of God. Stop thinking you know what God is thinking. Because you don't. Why is that? Well, this text warns us that man can never presume to know the mind of God. God moves and acts as he will according to his good purpose. And that's the thought behind Isaiah 55 verses 8 through 9. Listen to what God says there. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. I don't think the way you think. Praise God, by the way, for that truth. Or we'd be in trouble if God thought like we thought. Neither are your ways my ways. I don't act like you do, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Just like you look at the stars and you look at how high they are, far infinitely above you, you can never reach them with a human hand, so are my thoughts, and so are my ways. So what do you think, beloved? Let's let God be God and guide us. And let us be the followers. That way we don't get ourselves in trouble. And we don't speak presumptuously. I want you to look at the wisdom of the covenant God. As he guides David. Let's look at verses 6 through 7. Where we now look at the humility of the covenant God. The humility of the covenant God. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought, I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? In this portion of scripture, the Lord states that he had never asked any previous leader to build him a proper temple. He had never asked. The Lord had been, according to the word of God, moving about in a tent for his dwelling. And seems to be content to do so. Beloved, I want you to look at the humble condensation. Look at how God becomes less in order to serve his people. Look how he identifies himself with his destitute people. We read, in all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. God had been moving with his people. God had been moving with his people when? When they left Egypt, God was moving with his people when they wandered in the desert for 40 years because of their sin, God did not abandon them. God was moving in the tent with his people. When they entered the promised land, God came with them in a tent. He was moving with his people. When the people, through disobedience, forgot God 
And God would raise up a series of judges to deliver them. And they were afflicted. And they were running. And they were hiding. Even in their own land, they were destitute. God was moving with his people. And even in the kingdom of Saul, although they seem to be permanent, we have a king now. Saul was so mercurial, was all over the place, that the people didn't know whether they were coming or going. They didn't know when they were going to win or lose because of Saul's fits and his rages. So in essence, they were still not permanently settled into the kingdom, the promised kingdom. God was moving with his people. Are you getting it, beloved? Isn't he a wonderful God? Pay close attention to what the text is revealing about our God. God loves his people. This, this thought should move us to adoring tears. God is the God who will not enjoy rest until he gives his people rest. God is the God who stoops down to share the hardships of his people. God is the God who is not ashamed to say that he has been traveling around in a tent with them. What an incredible thought that is. This text reveals how close God is to his people. If we do not naturally see the humility of our God, this text forces us to revise our theology. What a humble God we serve, that he would identify himself with us. Here is the great God, the Almighty, the omnipotent God, who sits enthroned in heaven, who angels worship, who call stars by name, and they come and yet, in an essence, he's moving around in a tent on earth with his people. What God would do something like this? Only the one true God. The great God of the universe, which controls every atom, every molecule, is moving around in temporary tents with us as we pilgrim, pilgrimage on this earth. Our God will have a permanent temple God says to David, but only when the king of peace builds it. And that he's referring to Solomon, but really the greatest fulfillment of that is who? Jesus Christ, our Lord. While the people are moving, while the people are impermanent, while the people are afflicted, God will move with them. The humility of God is ever is even better displayed in the person of David's greatest son, Jesus Christ. Solomon is called the king of peace because he will have peace in his kingdom. But we know something about Solomon, don't we? If you've read ahead, spoiler if you haven't, I think you all have. He fails God. And the sons of David fail God. There's only really one king of peace. There's only one really king of peace and we're waiting for him to come again. He's come once and we're waiting for him again. Notice that the king of peace, the true king of peace, Jesus Christ, when he came the first time, his holy presence was also contained in a tent. And he was also moving around with his people. Isn't that what Jesus did? He came and he clothed himself. He became one of us. And he moved with us. Isn't that wonderful to know? Isn't it wonderful to know that he's in heaven right now, still in that tent, glorified, but still in that tent? Interceding for us. I want you to consider the depth of John 1.14. You know this verse. It says, in the word, meaning Jesus, became what? Flesh. That alone should keep us up at night without sleeping. How can God become a man? Amen? 
That's a, just an incredible thought. But the Bible goes on to says, and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt there is tabernacled. And he tabernacled with us. Already we flash back to the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God inside the tent. He tabernacled with us. He's the Ark of the Covenant. He's in this human tent and he lived with us. What an incredible thought that is, isn't it? And the Word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us, and we have seen His glory. We're not like the Israelites that could not behold the glory of the ark before or lest they die. We have actually seen His glory. Praise God for that. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Isn't that who Jesus is? He's the, the true ark of the covenant in the tent tabernacling with us, moving around with us, and yet we are invited into the holy place to see the glory of God, unlike the Old Testament. Do you see why 2 Samuel 7 is so important? Because we see Christ come. And the Bible literally tells us he tabernacled with us. What an incredible thought is. And a greater fulfillment of the humility of Christ is seen in the very famous passage in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. There's your tabernacle. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Oh, beloved, look at the humility of God. And look at how much he loves his people. Therefore, as Christians, we are to imitate this very humility. A little further up, we read in Philippians 2, 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And isn't that what God did? He tabernacled with us in the form of the Son. He tabernacled with the people in the Old Testament, the great God of heaven, in a tent in his presence. What an incredible thought that is, moving around, not even permanent. Beloved, how are you doing in the area of humility? It's a good question to ask. Do you resemble the God of Scripture and his divine Son? Listen, humility is a necessary mark of Christianity. Humility is a necessary mark of, hum- of Christianity. So now you have seen the wisdom of the covenant of God. You've seen the humility of the covenant God. Let's look at verses 8 through 11. We see the grace of the covenant God. The grace of the covenant God. Now therefore, thus, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Did you see who is the initiator of grace? How many of you caught the, I emphasize the I in the Lord. Did you hear me do that on purpose? 
I will do this, and I've done this, and I, and I, and I, and I. Who's the initiator of grace? It's God. What a wonderful God we have. What incredible words are found in the text. God has a direct word for the king. And listen, pay close attention, because by implication, God is speaking to you as a believer today, too. God recounts his goodness towards David. And in the process, we hear the echo of grace that has been poured out into our very own lives as well. Notice the former grace that God has given David. God says, I have, I have given you grace before, incredible grace. And I will give you grace even to go further. I am the God of grace. Listen to the former grace of our God. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince, royalty over my people Israel. David had been a shepherd boy. His own father didn't think he was anything special. When the prophet asked for all his sons to be present, his own father didn't invite him. He was the lowest of the lowest of the lowest in his house. And God picked him from the lowest position, from following after sheep, a smelly shepherd, and God put him where? In the highest position in the land. You are now the king of Israel. Can God do that? Can he take someone so base and make them so great? Beloved, he has done it for you and for me as well. Was it not God's sovereign choice, his election of us, that rescued you from the lowest of positions? You were a child of disobedience, a child of wrath. Ephesians chapter 2. And he took you from the lowest position that he might put you in the highest position. You are a child of God now. Adopted by the work of Christ on the cross. God says, I took you from the pasture. I put you into the kingdom. And he says to you, I took you from the nothingness. From hell itself to rescue you, to make you a citizen and a child of heaven. See, what God has done for David, he has done for you and I even to a greater extent. Praise God for this truth. Listen to Psalm 40 verse 2. He drew me up from the pit of destruction. He took me out of the miry bog and he set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure. Is that not our testimony? Should you not memorize this verse? Should you not say amen in all your heart and thank you God if you're a child of God? He took you from the pit of destruction from your sin in Jesus Christ, he took you from the Maori bog and he set your feet on a secure foundation on the rock. Who is the rock? Jesus Christ. Oh, beloved, look at the grace of God. Look at a second point of grace. I have been with you wherever you went. Don't, don't run past this portion of scripture. It is so important. I have been with you wherever you, went, wherever you have gone. Why is that portion of scripture? Because David didn't always go where he was supposed to go. Amen? God was with him when he went against Goliath. Well, we understand that. Praise God. God was with him when he cut grace to Saul and would not kill him. We understand that. Praise God. But God was with David when he was spitting on his beard and acting crazy at the Philistia because he had disobeyed God. God was with him then. David might not have felt like the presence of God was with him, but God had never abandoned him. How do we know he didn't die in Philistia? Amen? And God was with David again when he went to Philistia again, and he was now caught in the crosshairs. He had to go against the people of God, and if he didn't go against the people of God, the Philistines would have killed him because they would have known him to be a traitor, and David was caught in the middle because of his lies. You know what, beloved? God was with him then too. 
Because all of a sudden the Philistines' lords go, you know, we don't want him to come with us. Send him back. And they deliver him. That was God's grace too. God was with David when he was in trouble, when Saul was about to capture him. And news came that the Philistines were invading and Saul had to abandon his pursuit and go fight the Philistines. So when David was doing right, God was with him. When David was in trouble, God was with him. And when David had done something stupid, God was still with him. Isn't that good news? Apply it to yourself, beloved. Isn't that good news? Because you don't always do the right thing, unfortunately. You should, but you don't always do the right thing. And there are times when you get into trouble. And whether you're in the good times, in the bad times, or in the troubled times, God has never left you. Has not God graciously walked with each of us all the days of our Christian pilgrimage? Has He not walked with us in the good and in the bad? Of course He has. Listen to the words of Jesus Christ Himself in Matthew 28, 20, the last part. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you know that Jesus has never failed upon this promise with any Christian for the last 2,000 years? Jesus has never broken this promise in the last 2,000 years for any Christian. Every Christian, every true Christian has had Christ walking with him all the days of their lives. What an incredible God we serve. No wonder we say he is the God of grace of the covenant. Amen. Point of grace number three. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. David could look and say, where's Saul? Oh, he's dead. Where's Abner? Oh, he's dead. Where's Ishbosheth? Oh, wait a minute. He's what? Dead. Where's Doeg, the Edomite? He's dead. There are no more enemies to hound David. Amen? Because God has delivered him. Has God not defeated our greatest enemies like he defeated David? Has God not defeated death and fear and Satan himself? What enemy is against you? What does Romans 8.28 say? When the dust settles, when the smoke clears, nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because Christ has been victorious over all. Rejoice, Christian. Rejoice. Listen. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57, as Paul mocks. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't fear death because I don't fear sin because my sin has been dealt with. That's one of our greatest enemies, our own sin, isn't it? Defeated by Jesus Christ. And even better, look at this. Revelation 20.10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And what do we say? Amen. Although the devil is up to his no goods, he's a defeated foe. Praise God. Has God not delivered us from our greatest enemies, beloved? Amen. Point of grace number four. It's a future promise. I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to take you from being a no account, no good, 
uh, never understood, never, never thought of, unimportant person, and I'm going to make you a great man. Your name will mean something. Beloved, this is what Christ has done for us. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called, read with me, children of God. I wasn't born a child of God from the perspective of my sin. I was from the perspective of election. But from my natural perspective, I was just like everybody else, a child of wrath. God took me from that position and he made my name great. Because my name is identified now with his name. That's what makes me my name great. I'm a child of the king. What can I say? But praise God. Beloved, are you getting the grace? Are you seeing grace? Are you marveling at grace? Are you adoring God for grace? Do you feel like weeping before the God of grace and grateful adoration? But God is not done. In our text, we see the past acts of grace with God, but now God's going to focus on the future promises to David and the people. The future grace that God is going to pour out of David. You're going, you're, you're going to have a lineage, a legacy. You're going to have a son who will be the God and the man. You will have an eternal throne and your son will sit on it forever. These are all future promises to David. However, it is not in response and it is not a reward for David building a temple or wanting to build a temple. God had rejected David from building the temple. It has nothing to do with the temple. Don't misread this. The past grace, David was a shepherd. Had nothing to do with temple. David hadn't even thought about temple. He didn't know he would be king. And even now, the future blessings are based upon the fact that God wants to give Christ to his people. And he's going to do it through David. David has no clue what's waiting. He has done nothing to deserve this. God is just a God of what? Grace. David is not the active initiator of the grace, nor are his actions the active initiator of grace, but David is the passive recipient of grace. David had done nothing, absolutely nothing to earn this grace, and yet God speaks in wonderful, gracious terms. God had taken him from the sheepfold. God had made him a king. God was with him wherever he went. God had given him a name. God had defeated his enemies. And now God will make David an eternal legacy and an eternal throne to his greatest son. These actions are based upon God's grace. And not one of these blessings was predicated upon David's goodness or David's deeds. This was all of grace. I'm, I'm belaboring the point for a reason. Because we know that salvation is of grace. Amen? But how quickly we want to forget and add to it. Beloved, God's grace is overwhelming. It is a tidal wave. And I don't know how to swim. It's just coming. And it just overpowers us. David will not. Listen what God says to it. David you will not build a house for me. But I will build a house for you. Praise God. Isn't that what God says? I will build a house for you. You will not build a house for me. Oh no David. I will build an eternal house for you. In other words, by God's grace, the Davidic kingdom would become an everlasting dynasty. Beloved, look at it and marvel because that's what God has done for you. What can you give God? What can you give God? Nothing. He gives you everything. How can you serve God 
You really can't accept that he allows condescends to accept your service. He should never accept service from someone like you or me, but he does. Think about God and think about yourself and say, well, what can I do to earn his favor? He is holy. He is perfect. He is infinite. He is above all things. I'm the opposite of all those things. How can I earn salvation or grace? I can't. Let us look at the layout then of verses 8 through 11. I call this a divine sandwich. You'll see why. Notice that the promised grace of God is given to David both before and after the promises of God's gracious protection of his people. God says, I'm going to do this for you, David. And at the end, God says, I'm going to do this for you, David. And in the middle, God says, and I'm going to bless my people. That's important. Read it again. It says, and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones on the earth. There's, there's the before. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And then here comes David again. And I will give you rest from all your enemies, David. And I will make you an eternal home. David, people, David. What does this mean? Well, it means that God will make David secure because he wants Israel to be secure. He establishes the Davidic dynasty for the sake of his people, for the salvation of his people. David will not be exalted for his own sake, but for the good of God's people. And beloved, Jesus Christ came for the good of God's people. Listen to this. Jesus was absolutely fine in heaven. There was no need for him to come. Do you see that? Would you say amen to that? There was no better place for Jesus than what? Heaven. And he empties himself and becomes one of us. Why? For the sake of God's people. So that the beginning of his life and the ending of his life, who's in between all that? The people of God. Just like David. What an incredible thought this is. It is David's kingdom that will inaugurate a new era. This era will have God's salvation as a cornerstone for his people. But, but, but we know something, don't we? We've read this book before. And we know that the Davidic kings failed miserably to provide the promised safety and the promised salvation for the people of God. Yes, once in a while there was a good one. But it was always undone by the bad ones, wasn't it? And there were so many bad kings. I'm not even talking about the north. I'm talking about the south. Just the Davidic lines. So many bad kings. The people would even eventually be carried off into captivity by the Babylonians. And it is at that point, I'm sure, someone that said, God's promises have failed. He promised us an eternal kingdom. And we're going into captivity without a king. You see where maybe the people thought God had failed, but God hadn't failed. God knew exactly what he was doing. God never cancels his promises. And we learned that the true Davidic king, Jesus Christ, will one day ensure that God's people will finally dwell in in security and will finally have complete salvation. We see it in Revelation chapter 19. Listen to Jeremiah 23, 6, talk about Jesus. It says, in his days, Judah will be saved. In the days of Jesus, Judah will be saved. And Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he, this one man, who is also God, will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Yahweh is our righteousness. God is our righteousness. He, the man, will be called. God is our righteousness. Did God forget his promises? Did he fail? No. Do we see a foreglimpse of them? Yes, in the New Testament? Absolutely. When? 
Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, the servant king, preparing the way for Jesus to ride into this scene of man on a white horse as the conquering king. Oh, beloved, look at the grace of our God. So we've looked at wisdom of our God, the humility of our God. We looked at the grace of our God, verses 12 through 16, 17, the constancy of the covenant God. How constant is God? When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for you offspring after you. You shall call uh, who shall come, excuse me, from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever again. Right? Beloved, now we have come to the heart and soul of the Davidic covenant. God's promises to David lie before us. God has promised him an eternal kingdom, eternal throne, an eternal son. Amen? A legacy. David's line will have an eternal legacy. And this promise is so sure. This promise of God is so perfect. This promise of God is so trustworthy that God himself says the following in regards to it. Look, look at your Bible again. What does God say about the promises, David? Death cannot annul my promises. Do you say amen to that truth? Death cannot annul my, your, my promises. How do we get that? Listen to what God says. When your days are fulfilled, fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you. David, when you die, I will do this work. Death itself cannot stop my promises. Amen? Whether I am alive at the second coming of the Lord or whether I have gone before that time, death cannot annul the promises of the coming king. Isn't that what God says? There's a coming king and your death will not stop it. As a matter of fact, your death will hasten it. What an incredible thought this is. Not only can death not annul it, listen, this is what God says, time cannot erase it. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. What does the word forever mean to you? How woefully inadequate are you to consider the word forever? Amen? You see, I read the word forever, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's forever, but what does that really mean? Everything I know dies. Everything I know breaks. Everything I know decays. I have never known something to be forever. And neither have you, because we're temporary creatures here on this earth from the perspective of our human bodies. We're eternal from the perspective of salvation. Amen? But we haven't gotten to that eternal salvation yet. We're not there in the presence of God yet. So what we know, I know that I look in the mirror every day and I realize that I'm not going to last forever in this form. How about you? Time will not erase the promises of God. As a matter of fact, the king, this coming king, this promise of the coming king will rule over time. What an incredible thought, right? Death cannot what? Annul it. Time cannot erase it. And finally, sin cannot destroy it. 
And this last one causes me to say thank you to God. I will be to him a father, Solomon, and he shall be to me my son. When Solomon commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. There's no difference between Solomon and Saul. Does that offend you? Both men sinned against God. Amen? What's the difference between Solomon and Saul? God took his grace away from whom? Saul, his presence. But I will not take it in grace from Solomon. No matter what he does, I won't take it. He's mine. He's my son. I will not, it will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from me, from before you, excuse me. I did away with Saul because of his sin. I cast him out. But my promise is to you, David, of the coming king who will reign over God's people, who will establish a kingdom of peace that will last for an eternity. David, listen, my promises to you are not based upon the obedience of your son Solomon. What can we say? Praise God. It's not a conditional promise. It's not, these things will happen if Solomon follows me all the days of his life. If it was a conditional statement, we'd all be going to hell. But God says, no matter what Solomon does, and I know what he's going to do, and I will punish him, and I will discipline him. It won't matter. I won't take my presence from your son Solomon. And you know what, David? I won't take it from his son, Rehoboam. I won't take it from his son, and I won't take it from his son, and his son, and his son, and his son. I will not take my presence away. I am determined to give you the eternal King, Jesus. Amen? Praise God. Sin cannot erase the promises of God. Remember that next time you commit iniquity. Confess it. Feel terrible. Beat your breast and cry before God and, and beg for mercy. But remember this. Your sin cannot erase the promises of God. Amen? If you ever have that temptation, think, well, I, I've obviously lost my salvation. Look at me. Haven't we all wrestled with that thought at one point or another? There's no way Sin cannot erase the promises of God. Why? Because our sins are laid perfectly upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ. And he paid for every one of them. Past, present, and what? Future. And do you think that he's in heaven going, oh, oh, I didn't know you were going to commit that sin. Oh, no, that's too much. I was, I was okay up to this point, but I had no idea you were going to go. Do you think that's what's going on in heaven? Praise God. It might shock you, but it never shocks God. This should shock us, but it will never shock God. This, this is good news. Beloved, God's promises to the saints are sure. Death, eternity, nor, nor our sin can prevent God from bringing the elect to the ultimate place of safety, our eternal home, our final salvation in the kingdom of the Messiah. Praise God for this truth. This is why I love Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this. How? I am what? Sure, I am confident. This is, this, is, this is the truth I live by. That God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So how sure are the promises of God, beloved? How sure? They're bound up in the word olam. It's a Hebrew word that's used here three times. That word olam means forever. How sure are the promises of God? They will endure what? 
forever. In this very word, forever, we find the person and the work of Jesus Christ. In the word forever, we see the legacy of David. In the word forever, we see the greatest son of David. In the word forever, we see the throne of David. All three of them will last what? Forever. And all three of them are consummated in whom? Jesus Christ. Revelations 1.6, which we read earlier, says about him, he made us a kingdom he made us priests to his God and Father. To him, to Jesus, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Only the king can have glory forever and ever and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, beloved, God's kingdom, God's kingdom plan through David's dynasty is simply unstoppable. He will defeat death. He will defeat sin and time. He's a God that pours grace upon grace. He's a God of wisdom, a God of humility. We look upward to the clouds to the day in which every eye will see him. The first time Jesus Christ came, he came humbly. At night, no one knew except for some shepherds. No one knew. I heard someone say he came in the back door. That's kind of like a good picture of it, right? But the second coming of our Lord. Brothers, why are you standing here looking up? The same Jesus that ascended this way will come down. And what does the Bible say? That the heavens will tear, literally tear open. And he will come. And the Bible says, and every eye will see him. He's not coming in the back door next time. Praise God. Everyone will see him. Jesus Christ is coming, beloved. How do I know? Because he's made promises. And I know that death or time or sin can annul those promises. And I know what you're thinking, but it's been 2,000 years. Yeah, it's been about two days. Amen? For what is 1,000 years to the Lord but a day and one day like what? A thousand years. From our perspective, it's been a long time. But from God's perspective, he is imminently here. Second Samuel 7 speaks of Jesus Christ. It speaks of Solomon to a lesser extent. But to the greatest extent, it speaks of whom? Jesus Christ. And here's the promise. And here's the thing about the promise of the coming king. He's already half fulfilled it. When he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. We're just waiting for the other half. Amen. Where he comes to set up his eternal kingdom. And we will reign with him. All of that. All the promises. Dependent on this one chapter. Praise God for it. Amen. Let us pray. Father we thank you. For your word today. I pray that it's been a blessing to your people. As it's been a blessing for me to prepare. I pray that they leave here with their brains hurting. And so much to contemplate and their hearts full. And I pray that they leave this place, O oh Lord, with a desire to make God the priority over everything in their lives. As we talked about, Lord, we cannot have unbalanced priorities. Christ must be the chief aim of all things in our lives. Forgive us if he's not. Make it so if, he, if it's not, Lord. And help us, O oh Father God, to see him as the, as the covenant God of wisdom, the covenant God of mercy and grace and humility.
Help us to see him rightly, Lord. Help us to see him as the constant God. We can trust on the promises of God. Help us to see him as 2 Samuel chapter 7 presents him. And Father, if there's anyone here who has never come to Christ, may what they have just heard and what they have experienced in the teaching of the word stir their souls to say, I need God. Oh God, forgive me of my sin. Make me a child of God. Pray that many, if they're unsaved, would call unto you. Not only from this group, but those who hear us through all the different media. We thank you, God, for your word today. And next week, Lord, or two weeks from now, we get to explore David's response as he sits before God and says the right thing, the thing we should all be saying. Who am I that you would deal this way with your servant? Who am I that I can receive so much from this God of grace? Oh, Lord, teach us this humility in Christ's name. Amen.